This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. On the eve of the anniversary of devastating and deadly floods in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, thousands of residents remain in limbo waiting for answers about their future. More than 1,000 people are still living in temporary pod villages or emergency accommodation. The Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation is leading an $800 million response to move those most at risk from the floodplain, but says it'll take time. From Lismore, Bronwyn Herbert prepared this report. Hey Julia, how are you? Yeah, getting through. At least it stopped raining. It's been a rocky year for South Lismore resident Julia Melvin. The graphic designer was one of hundreds rescued from torrential floodwaters that submerged the city. Twelve months on, I've struggled and I've wasted literally a year surviving. Julia Melvin now lives in a caravan that sits in the shadow of the shell of her home. So, here we are, back in the house. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of time in here because it really, um, I, I get a bit emotional about it because... Um, this was my mid-century room. It'll scrub up good when I take it somewhere else. She's one of more than 6,000 residents across the region registered for a New South Wales and federal government funded buyback. Best outcome for me would be a situation where I could relocate my house. Down the road, South Lismore painter Jim Whips is staying put. He hasn't registered for the buyback. Not even the realm of in my mindset because I'd rather stay here how I am and then over the next couple of years, rebuild the house, repaint it, chip away at it. Are you worried, though, of having another natural disaster like the one we've had? No, not at all. Honestly, if it happened, it happened. I can't change nature. There's a lot of people around the world a lot worse off than us. He says the past year has been the toughest of his life. Very big mental load, especially when the bank just wants to continue taking mortgage payments. And because the work slowed down for that three or four month period, it was a really hard time to, to get through. You know, a lot of people do want to help, but us buffy blokes, I suppose, turn around and go, we're right, we're right, and we're not. But he's made peace through the piano. Music is a leveller. It's a, it doesn't matter what, what nationality you are or what you've gone through in trauma, music will always love you. And going to the conservatorium and just getting focused on it again. But that was the first thing I bought. Went down and bought a piano and there was no lounge, no fridge, had nothing, but had a piano. David Witherden from the Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation is leading the government response, which includes buybacks, house raising and retrofitting homes. Whilst it may appear slow on the outside, you know, I'm confident that you know, we're going to scale up and we're going to move quickly and we, we will deliver a program that in future years will be judged on the success of that. You know, we know we're going to get other events and the last thing I want to do is be sitting here in three or five years time and going, hey, we spent $700 million and you didn't make the difference that you said you would. For Julia Melvin, she's given herself another year to pick up the pieces. Um, yeah, so I've got to gut this and start again. So, um, I know, you know, give me another 12, by 12 months I'll be, you know, raring to go. The Reconstruction Corporation says all eligible homeowners will have their assessment completed by the middle of the year. Bromman Herbert there. 
Months after millions of people had their personal data hacked during the Optus and Medibank private cyber attacks, the federal government is setting up a new agency to tackle the problem. There'll be a new senior official, a coordinator for cybersecurity, who'll lead a national office for cybersecurity within the Home Affairs Department. And along with a roundtable of business security and tech leaders, the Prime Minister is releasing a discussion paper about a new cybersecurity strategy. To discuss all of this, I spoke earlier with the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. Minister, what will this new coordinator for cybersecurity actually do? So, Sabra, a really important step forward for the government today. Um, We arrived in government confronting a real mess with cybersecurity. So, what we saw was different parts of government and the private sector doing important things, but kind of all rowing in different directions. And what was clearly needed here was political leadership, and we've got that from the personal investment of the PM. And he today has decided to appoint a coordinator to ensure that there is spine and strategy for the work being done throughout government and also an office within my department that will support the coordination work. So practically, what will that person do and when will this office be in place? So two really important tasks for this person. The first will be, as I said, to try to provide some strategy and structure and spine to the work being done across government. So it will mean things like making sure that the billions of dollars that we are investing in cybersecurity each year are being spent in a way that's strategic and appropriate, that we've got different parts of government communicating with each other and working together on helping lift cybersecurity protections across the country. But, Sabra, the other really important part of this person's job will be to help manage cyber incidents in a proper, seamless, strategic way across the Australian government. That is something that has been missing due to the negligence of the former government in managing this critical area of national security and today the PM has moved to fix that problem. When will it be in place? We're in the process of advertising for that role so we're looking at something over the next month. A discussion paper is also going to be released today on a new seven-year cybersecurity strategy that the government wants in place from next year. Is it going to set a minimum cybersecurity arrangements for businesses and companies? Sabra, um, the Australian government is is coordinating a huge cyber uplift that's been occurring now for eight months. We want Australia to be the most cyber secure country in the world by 2030 and the cyber strategy is the main mechanism that will get us there. So today the discussion paper was released which asks a bunch of questions about how we can be the most cyber secure country in the world by 2030 and one of those is about how we can work with business to make sure that they are lifting cyber security standards in partnership with government. So I can actually already set minimum cybersecurity standards, which I have done across eight major sectors of the Australian economy. And the question posed by the cyber strategy is, is that enough? And do we need to lift standards higher for more businesses across Australia? Therefore, do you also envisage widening the definition perhaps of what a critical asset is and therefore what entities and businesses have to do to better protect consumer data and themselves? Yeah. So really important question, Sabra. We went through Optus and Medibank, two of the biggest cyber attacks that Australia's experienced last year. And in those events, we were meant to have at our disposal a piece of law that was passed by the former government to help us engage with companies under cyber attack. 
And that law was bloody useless, like not worth the ink printed on the paper when it came to actually using it in a cyber incident. It was poorly drafted. And the the discussion paper um, asked a bunch of questions about how it is that we could redraft those laws so they're actually useful to us. They're not fit for purpose at the moment, and I do think they need reform. All right, you talked about Optus and Medibank. Had this new coordinator and office been in place when those hacks happened, what difference would they have made? It would have made a huge difference, Sabra. Um, when Optus hit, much to my shock as cybersecurity minister, there was no cyber emergency response function in the Australian government. I am really angry about that. Those events were completely foreseeable events that were completely not foreseen by the previous government. Now, we dealt with those incidents well, but that is in spite of government structures, not because of them. Literally, cabinet ministers stepped in and managed the incident in a way that is not sustainable when we are under basically relentless cyber attack. So what we will have now is an individual in the public service who is going to coordinate the response across government and make sure that not only are we deterring and preventing cyber attacks, but when they occur, which they will continue to occur, cyber, we are not going to reduce cyber risk to zero, that Australians can get back up off the mat quickly, get services restored, get their data protected, get their um, identity numbers changed. These are the sort of core things that this person would have been able to do much more seamlessly. Is there merit in having a public discussion about whether ransom should be paid to get back sensitive data that's stolen? Yeah, I do think it's um, it's an important public discussion, Sabra, and that's why I haven't shut it down and said that it's something that we won't consider. Today, the PM is hosting a roundtable in Sydney with cyber experts from around Australia, and this is just the sort of subject that we'll be talking about. The, the key question is we know cyber attacks are relentless and they are growing over time. How do we set ourselves up for a safe future in the context of a really dangerous geopolitical environment that we're heading into. So this is a core national security risk and the PM is very actively and personally involved in it. Claire O'Neill, thanks for talking to AM. Thanks, Sabra. And Claire O'Neill is the Home Affairs Minister. An Australian professor and two of his Papua New Guinean colleagues have been freed after being held hostage for more than a week in a remote part of the country's highlands. PNG correspondent Natalie Whiting reports. After a week in the wilderness, the three hostages stepped off a plane in Port Moresby and were greeted by PNG's Prime Minister, James Marape. I did apologise to the professor and the, and the two other Papua New Guinean hostages for the incident. Australian professor Bryce Barker and his PNG colleagues Tepsi Benny and Jamina Haro were then whisked away in a waiting car. The three researchers, along with another team member Kathy Alex, who was released three days earlier, had been completing fieldwork for an archaeological research project through the University of Southern Queensland in a remote part of the highlands near Mount Bosavi when they were taken hostage. It was a, a random opportunities crime that took place was something that I condemned in the various strongest term possible. A ransom was paid to ensure their safe release, but it was far less than what was originally demanded by the gang that kidnapped them. The criminals remain at large, for now. Dozens of police and defence personnel have been flown into the area in recent days. The country's police commissioner, David Manning, says the operation will continue now that the hostages are out. Uh, We're very much uh, committed to ensuring that those who are responsible are held to account. It's not just a law and order issue, it's also political. 
While the plane was in the air bringing Professor Barker and his colleagues back to Port Moresby, the terminal where it was set to land changed, seemingly to allow Prime Minister James Marape to welcome them and give a press conference. While high-profile kidnap for ransom cases are rare in PNG, this gang and others have long been terrorising villages in the Mount Basavi region. President of the Basavi local level government, Daffy Mio, sent his apologies to the families and called for action. The suspect must face the full force of the law. Villagers assisted with passing on information and protecting another foreigner who happened to be in the area. Will there be ongoing security support for the villagers, many of whom are very concerned that there could be retribution or further criminal attacks on them following this incident? Look, I won't go into the details of this ongoing operation, but uh, yes, we have taken those concerns on board. Let me tell all the criminals, police firepower is always higher than uh, criminal firepower. I will not tolerate this sort of nonsense anymore. And so, uh, yeah, yes, up there, police will remain, soldiers will remain. Mr Marape says they will not rest until the matter is resolved. This is Natalie Whiting in Port Moresby for AM. Fighting in eastern Ukraine is becoming increasingly fierce as Russia pushes recently mobilised troops to the front line in the Donbass region. It's causing anxiety in Ukrainian villages that were liberated from Moscow's grip just months ago. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins reports from Le Mans. Not many in Leman have electricity or running water. Many rely on firewood, the heating and cooking. Even the soldiers who defend the city must do what it takes to keep warm. Inside an abandoned house, a dozen soldiers have set up camp. The two-bedroom home now serves as their battalion's small frontline hospital. Yulia Salmina is one of the military medics working here. We're hearing a lot of explosions right now. Fighting is going on not far from us. Our guys are on the front line and we wait for them. There is always a shortage of doctors in the army. Our men protect us and we must help them, treat them. There is no other option but to help. Sometimes she's stabilising soldiers with severe injuries before they're sent away to bigger hospitals. Often they have shrapnel wounds from explosions. Lately, as the bitter winter bites, she's treating frostbite injuries. But today, at the top-secret base, there's some time for reflection, as one of the soldiers receives a medal for his bravery. Even one is too many to die, and it's our young guys dying, 25, 27 years old. Galina Almazova is another medic in the battalion. She's loading up her van, preparing to head to the front line. The battlefront is about two dozen kilometres away, on the border of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Russian troops and tanks rolled into this town in May and began a brutal occupation. In September, after a fierce counter-offensive, Ukraine reclaimed the village, but the fighting never stopped. Here in Liman, it is constantly being shelled. It is collapsing even more. There is no infrastructure left here. Near Liman is one of the hottest points right now because Russia is trying to break through in order to control a critical highway. Still, there are some who have chosen to stay. I meet Lubov. 
She doesn't want to tell me her last name for fear of Russian authorities. She moved underground almost a year ago and lives in a basement with other local women. From the very first day, I made a decision that I wouldn't go anywhere. I've lived for 37 years in this home. This is a tragedy. I never thought in my whole life that this could happen here. The worst could be yet to come for this town, but still these women are determined to stay. This is Isabella Higgins in Le Mans, reporting for AM. More than a million Australians had an eating disorder before the pandemic hit. Since then, cases have exploded, especially for young people. Some major hospitals have reported an 80 to 100 percent increase in children presenting with anorexia nervosa, one of the deadliest of all mental illnesses. But a Four Corners investigation has found people are missing out on life-saving treatment because of an overburdened health system. Grace Tobin reports. It's breakfast time in Sarah Hearn's home in regional Victoria. Her mother Jenny is supervising her while she eats. Yeah, I need to sit with her, otherwise she'll have trouble eating her breakfast. The 23-year-old has anorexia nervosa, a potentially fatal mental illness characterised by an intense fear of food. I know it's hard to try and eat the rest. No, I said no. I know, eat some more. No. Sarah's been rapidly losing weight since she was discharged from hospital last month. There's obviously something going on in your head that makes it really difficult. What is that? All the thoughts that I have... That, like, I don't deserve to eat, um, that I'm too fat, that I'm out of control. Sarah is falling through a gap in Australia's health system. She isn't considered sick enough for hospital. At the same time, she can't get into the country's only live-in treatment program. Even if she did, it could cost her up to $73,000 for a two-month stay. I just feel like... There's nowhere else to turn now. Like, it feels like no one cares. So why should I care? Her long-term clinical psychologist, Dr Lindsay Atkins, says Sarah could die if she doesn't receive proper care soon. This is awful. You've got a young adult who wants treatment, who can't access treatment. Like, where, where does this exist in, a, in another serious illness? Since the pandemic, some major hospitals have recorded an 80 to 100% increase in children presenting with anorexia nervosa. In Melbourne, Deanna Cohen's 11-year-old daughter was diagnosed with the illness a year ago. She's already been admitted 20 times. When she's terrified about food or if she's stopped from exercising, she can turn absolutely demonic. Um, and it's really scary. An investigation by Four Corners has found the system is underprepared to deal with the spike in cases. There are only 43 public hospital beds dedicated to treating eating disorders across the country. Some states and territories have none at all. Federal Health Minister Mark Butler admits the whole system is falling short. I think crisis is the only word you can use. We clearly need more capacity in the system. The previous coalition government allocated $56 million to build six more residential centres, but none of them are even close to opening. I think it is time that we got some clearer commitments about when those centres would be completed, which is why I've written to health ministers to try to get some clarity around that. A new national strategy on eating disorders is being released in August. Grace Tobin reporting, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. How would you feel if a bank made you guarantee in writing that you'd move back in with your mother if you couldn't pay your home loan anymore? Today, business editor Ian Verinder on the incredible profits the banks are making as hundreds of thousands of people struggle to make ends meet. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.